Welcome to the Auditorium Podcast, a portal into the fringes of culture. Hello and welcome to the Auditorium Podcast. I'm your presenter, Dr. Bramwell, and my co-presenter, David Mountfield. We've got a bit of a special one. For this episode, we have. And there we, won't be much of us chundering on, will there? Because it's hopefully enormous. not. Uh, no, we've got we've got Alan Moore, the the comic book writer, um, novelist. And are you a fan? Yes, I I, I I read The Watchman when I was about nineteen twenty, and uh, um, it completely recalibrated my mind to what was possible in the form. Really, and I suddenly started taking it seriously, and read From Hell and um, Viva Vendetta. Vendetta. And all the things that subsequently went on to be made into awful films. Poor old Alan Moore. He's had absolutely no luck, um, unlike Miller, um, with his films being made. Although I quite like Watchmen, I have to say. And V for Vendetta has gained a kind of cult status because, of course, it's it's become the face of Anonymous, hasn't it? And the uh, and the sort of big protest movement. Or well, the, the mask, yeah, the, mask, the V for yes. Vendetta mask, and it's, and the, the you know the smiley face from Watchmen. Have yes, become iconic. they both become iconic. Exactly. Yeah. So he can't complain entirely, despite the worst excesses of uh, Hollywood. He is still. He deals in very, very profound memes, very profound and tending towards the left view of 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 the world. More than say. tending, I would say. Yes, yeah, I'd say he's he, he's, he's a, the voice of the left in graphic novels. Well, although way. he although he describes himself as an anarchist, so I, I think he probably wouldn't affiliate. With, he doesn't affiliate with any political parties. Although recently he did come out in favour of Corbyn and said, yeah. "I don't vote, but I would encourage others." If I did to vote, vote, yes, I read yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I did do something as naff as voting, it would be for Corbyn. But yeah. but. As we know, more recently, his novel Jerusalem, which is, I think took 10 years to write, came out... It's enormous, isn't it? How, how long is it? It's over 600,000 words. Oi, well, how many pages is that? Quite a few. And you're reading it at the moment, aren't I'm you? I'm 200 pages before the end. Wow. Yeah. So is it as big as Infinite Jest? Is it that big? Is it a massive, massive well, it's novel? It's probably bigger than Infinite Jest, yeah. Good Lord. Yeah. Goodness me. Wow. But it, it, is, it's, it really is an extraordinary piece of work and very accessible. It's a really accessible read. It may even the Joycean bit. Well, the Joycean bit is because it's so deep into the book. You're, you're, you're like, I'm committed you're, now. Yeah, do this. yeah. He spent so long working on that section of the book that he took a year off afterwards to <laughs> sort of calm <laughs> to, down to relax and then come back to it. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and there's a wonderful. A big part of the book is about the Dead Dead Gang, who are a group of of children of of, of different ages who roam around the ghost realm having adventures, and the ghost realm is this sort of mezzanine level between our realm, the realm of the living, and the realm of, of Mansoul above, and there is another level of existence above that. And he's, there are so many, you know, the layers of existence match the layers of meaning within the book. You learn about his philosophy, the way that he sees the world. There's even a character in it called Alma Warren. Who which is, is him, isn't it? It's, which is, which is yeah. him. And there's one chapter which is just about a day that she spends, a day in her life and what she does. And it's a great insight into what a typical day for, for Alan Moore is and a real understanding of how he sees the world and sees himself and how he operates and thinks. It's just it's just wonderful. It's, it's, it's probably, in some ways you could say this book is the most unique autobiography ever written. Right. Well, it sounds as almost as good as a... Agatha Christie or a, a good, uh, <laughs> good Dorothy L. Sayers. Um, and, and anyway, with all this chundering on, we've chundered on, haven't we? So we, we have we indeed. Get down to the talk. So here he is, Alan Moore in conversation with John Higgs. Yeah, I mean, a big thing that's occupying a lot of my time at the moment is 
since we did the uh, the counterculture event in November, uh, we we had a, a thing up in Northampton where, and and this was younger people. This was students. They'd contacted me a few months before because they felt that they should be expressing themselves politically, and yet they didn't really like any of the options that were available, and so they'd they'd heard that I sort of occasionally went on about anarchy and <laughs> um, that sort of stuff. So they got me up there and I realised very quickly that uh, they didn't understand a word I was saying. Um, I was making all these reference, references to people and things that people of our age uh, would immediately recognise. I was saying, well, you know, like the, the author, uh, Aldous Huxley, uh, and I said, well, he, w he wrote this great dystopian fiction, Brave New World. He was also a pioneer in psychedelics, and it was his agendas that were kind of uh, fueling the psychedelic revolution. Uh, <laughs> I said, well, you see, this was the psychedelic revolution. It was a disciple of Huxley's called Timothy Leary. <laughs> uh, and I said, well, Timothy Leary was like part of the counterculture. I said, yeah, yeah, actually, what, what you people really need is a counterculture. Um, not ours, because that's 50 years old. Uh, you actually need your own counterculture. So, so we, we got, um, we organised this event called Under the Austerity of the Beach. And uh, we got, uh, yeah, John was up there, Robin Ince, uh, Francesca Martinez, me and Melinda, uh, Grace Petrie. Josie Long was there. It was a fantastic lineup. Um, everybody was just talking about counterculture. And at the end, there was uh, about 20 minutes left. So we said, what about questions and answers? Anybody got any questions? And there was this woman sitting on her own in the front row. And she said, yeah, can anybody tell me how I can stay here and not go home to a life where I felt that nobody had these ideas but me? And I said, yeah, actually, that's a brilliant question. Um, what about anybody who wants to take this forward in any way? Leave your addresses with the contact details with the gentleman over there and we'll see what happens. That December, we met up about 16 people, 17 people. And we decided that, yeah, we'd like to something artistic that could respond to political matters. I suggested the name Arts Lab, although I understood that that might come with a lot of 60s baggage. There might be younger people who didn't really like that idea. So we completely wasted the first meeting <laughs> arguing about what we should call the group. <laughs> the, the second meeting was in mid-January, and it was freezing cold and about like five people turned up. And I said, yeah, this is actually a bit disappointing. But on the other hand, it does enable me to stage a coup. <laughs> um, so I said, because that is kind of the way I roll, you know. And, and I said, so I'm proposing, we call this Northampton Arts Lab. And it, with, if, unless there's any other better suggestions, I'm suggesting we call this Northampton Arts Lab because it's what David Bowie would have wanted. <laughs> and and, and they, they said, they said, are you, you really going to play that card? And I said, yes I, yes, I am. So we've got an arts lab back. 
We're, we've nearly got our first issue out of the magazine. We're having a, ro a, a rota of unused names for the group as titles for the magazine. Uh, the first one's called Peasants with Pens. The second one is called Indigo is Bullshit, which apparently is something that I said. At w I, I'm not really listening to what I'm saying. It's just words coming out of my mouth in a certain order, you know. I talk to a lot of people about Jerusalem, whether they want to or not. I sort of insist. Yeah. And I kind of have the view that if, if you're alive in 2016 and you're not planning to read Alan Moore's Jerusalem, you've gone wrong. Yeah. I mean, what else are you going to be doing? What TV? You know, what video game? When there's Alan Moore's Jerusalem. How would you persuade people who might say, I love the idea of it, I love the fact that you've written a 615,000-word book about Northampton. <laughs> I, might, I might skip it. How could you make those people see sense? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd first correct that. It, it's not 615,000 words about Northampton. It's 615,000 words about the tiny area of Northampton that I grew up in. <laughs> my, my previous book, Voice of the Fire, that was all about Northampton. But I thought, that actually, that, that's far too cosmopolitan. <laughs> I, I, I really should stick with what I know. Basically, um, not everybody will like Jerusalem, but I hope most people will. It's... It's a lot friendlier than you're probably expecting, especially those of you, those of you who read Voice of the Fire. Uh, some of you might think of yourselves as readers. I think of you as victims. Uh, it's, it's, that had got a deliberately, well, frankly, hostile front first chapter, which was all written in a made-up kind of Neolithic pidgin English and went on for pages and pages and pages. I was really proud of it, but someone, someone said, so why did you make the first chapter of your first novel incomprehensible gibberish? <laughs> and I said, this was during an interview, you don't very often get time to think before you give your answers. I said, to keep out scum. <laughs> Which is kind of true. I later found out about the concept of literary difficulty, which is a much better way of saying it. <laughs> but it still means to keep out scum. But sort of, uh, with Jerusalem, I thought, all right, I've, I've frightened everybody already. Everybody's intimidated. Why don't I make this novel, like, really, really readable? Or at least until you get to chapter 25 which is much, much worse than the first chapter of Voice of the Fire. But by then, you'll have invested so much in the novel that you'll want to finish it, won't you? You know, you could have just refused to read the novel with Voice of the Fire. I wanted to write a book big enough to talk about everything that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. And, and there's, a, there's a, a, a major philosophy that runs through this book, which has been touched on a few times um, uh, about the nature of time, about time as constantly eternal. I think, uh, you know, Prince said there was no sense of, there was no such thing of time 
because of music. Einstein said that because of mathematics. Yes. You said that because of magic. What do you mean by that? Well, it's, it's partly because this was... I was probably closer to Einstein than I was to magic regarding that idea. I started thinking... When I reached the age of about 50, which was like 12 years ago... I know I don't look it, do I? You start, the maths adds up differently. You start thinking about life and death differently. You can no longer really credibly pretend that, well, I'm, I'm about halfway through my life. No, you're not. You're, you're 50. So I thought, all right, how do I feel about death? And I started to think, well, you know, I'm, I think I've got a, a fairly decent attitude towards it, but how does it work? And, and I started to think about what I knew about physics which is that every scientist since Einstein has apparently agreed that we inhabit a space-time that has at least four dimensions. The three dimensions that we normally perceive, and a fourth, which is a spatial dimension like the others, but which we perceive as the passage of time. This is like a big, solid universe, and that our, only our minds are moving. Nothing in the universe is moving. It's solid. It's a block universe. Our minds are travelling through that, and it's a bit like, say, a projector beam playing over a strip of film. None of the individual images in that strip of film are changing or moving. But if the projector beam plays over them, then Charlie Chaplin does his funny walk. He beats the baddie. He gets the girl. There's a story. There's narrative. None of the frames have actually moved or changed. That is the way that I believe we have our lives. And also, that would mean that when we get to the end of our lives, there is no really, there's not really anywhere for our consciousness to go but back to the beginning, which is, depending on how you feel about your life, a really brilliant or a really horrifying <laughs> idea. Yeah. I kind of liked it yeah. because it doesn't require... It's a completely secular afterlife. It doesn't require a God. Mm. You can have one if you want, but it doesn't require one. Mm. And also, it means that you're not being judged by any remote authority that you might not happen to agree with. Mm -hmm. If anything, you're perhaps being judged by yourself. Mm -hmm. It seems fairer, and it seems more credible. And also, I'd read, I think, The Western Lands uh, by William Burroughs, which I think begins with the date that... The writer William Lee Seward or something tried to write his way around death. And I've got a great regard for William Burroughs, but I thought that's an interesting project. I wonder if I can write my way around death. So, yeah, this, is, this comes as a, an actual free gift with every copy of Jerusalem. Uh, immortality. Uh, I, I don't think that you'll find many... Martin Amis is not offering you that. <laughs> you can't give it back, though, afterwards. You can't give it back. How does this tie in with the sort of the very Blakean name of Jerusalem? Well, because if that's true, if that is true, then every moment is eternal. Everything is eternal. Every human being, every dog turd, Every broken tail light, everything 
is eternal, every brick, every ant. And this is a different way of looking at reality because it transforms reality. If the, what, half a square mile area that I grew up in, which is the, that's the, the, the area that Jerusalem concerns itself with, that is in the top 2% of deprivation for the entire of the country. It's always been, it used to be the whole of Northampton, uh, but that was like Saxon times, something like that. <laughs> we go back a long way. Uh, it's, uh, the, it has probably been the most despised area of Northampton since the Great Fire, which started in the boroughs, but there was a west wind, so it was the rest of the town that burned down. <laughs> but they got renewed, and we didn't. We were just left to rot. But it's not just the boroughs. Obviously, that's the place where I grew up. That's the place that I know. It has got some fascinating stories embedded in it, but I'm using it as a kind of a shorthand for every um, degraded and despised area. And also, of course, since I started writing Jerusalem in 2005 or something like that, uh, we have had the economic collapse of 2008, which makes Jerusalem a lot more relevant. It's kind of suggesting that back when I was growing up, people from the better off areas of town used to avoid the boroughs. Uh, they told their children not to go there because you'll be robbed by drunks. It's possible you might have been, but not generally. Mm. One of the messages of, of Jerusalem is, look, you don't have to go to the boroughs because the boroughs is coming to you. Right. Uh, yeah. Wherever you live, whatever class you're in. Yeah. We're all the lower classes now, aren't we? To get off the, that, that philosophy probably explains, I don't know if you've seen the one tweet the one tweet that Alan uh, has sent, which is via the Moment of More account, uh, which was essentially, uh, don't do anything you can't live with forever. If you read Jerusalem, that will, that will resonate. That, that is the thing that I'd like people to, to come away with, that um, have a good life. Uh, I mean, when Nietzsche, uh, and I mean, he wasn't really such a good philosopher as I am, so he... he <laughs> He got it wrong, but he was saying something very similar based upon the idea of an infinite universe. He was saying, well, if it's an infinite universe that is going to go on for an infinite amount of time, there will be an infinite number of identical planet Earths, just by mathematics, which will have you on them as well. Now, that was when we thought that the universe was infinite. It's not. It's just really, really big. So this is based upon post-Einsteinian physics. It's, uh, but one of the things that Nietzsche said was that, yeah, the person, he says, this is the most scientific belief because whether it is true or not, if you lived your life as if it was true, you would have a better life. Live your life as if you're going to be living it forever. Yes, that would be a better life. Nietzsche also said that the person who puts forward this doctrine will be the most despised person in the history of humanity. <laughs> so um, I hope that's not going to happen, but I I'm prepared for it, yeah. you know. No, I think that's Zack Snyder at the moment. Um, well, let's, let's go on to the future then. Um, you've got this massive, massive piece of work off your shoulders. What are you planning to do uh, in the next years? 
Well, one of the things I'd like to do is I really do want to finish up with comics. I, I came up through the Arts Lab where we did everything. That was why the Arts Lab was fun. I was interested. Yeah, I did some comic strips in the Arts Lab, but I did a lot more performances and poems and pieces of prose. I've always liked doing just about everything. But the comics thing, uh, that paid off unexpectedly well, which all the time when I've been doing those comics, I've also been releasing albums, writing a couple of novels, doing performances, keeping my hand in. You know, I think we've, we've released about six or seven albums, which is more than a lot of people, a lot of well-known bands, that's more than they do in their career. At this point, I think that Probably I'll be finishing off Cinema Purgatorio, uh, which is great, incidentally, the fun that me and Kevin are having with that. We don't really settle in until issue three. The first two are okay, but the third one, that's, that's really, really good. And uh, they kind of get better. And there's another series that I've got about 48 pages on to do. And then me and Kevin want to do a final book of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that will just tie up all of the, the loose threads, even the ones that you didn't know were loose threads, <laughs> from uh, all of the previous books. So when I've got that, I reckon that's about another 250 pages of comics. Then I should just like to do whatever takes my fancy. There's, there's the films. Uh, we just heard that there's a good chance of the feature film, the show, will be made, and there are all sorts of things embedded in that. There's a possible television series after it. Mm -hmm. This could take years. Yeah. Um, I'd like to re-engage with poetry, because that is, you have to understand, one of the things that's put me off of comics is that, and this is probably an admission of kind of immaturity upon my part, but comics are like, really acceptable now. <laughs> e everybody really likes comics. They're, they're a good thing to have on your coffee table. Uh, I believe they're called graphic novels these days, which that's a lot more grown-up sounding. And I really liked comics when everybody hated them. I thought this is a brilliant medium that is being overlooked. It could be used for some fantastic things. And now here we are. Some comics are brilliant sum up. The medium is a brilliant medium. I am not convinced about the industry. These days, I would rather do things that nobody wants. Um, <laughs> like, you know, it's as you said in part of your very, very generous uh, write-up of Jerusalem that nobody asked for this novel. <laughs> because it was just me. I, I wanted it to exist. So... That's what art's about. It's not about what people want. It's about what I want. <laughs> it's, and so I would... I like the idea of doing a literary novel, a difficult literary novel that's a bit kind of modernist, because nobody wants that. Um, the, film, the film is going to be... It's not going to be a superhero franchise, so it's going to be something that nobody wants. 
you know these these are the areas that deserve most attention pornography I was thinking look this is an enormous genre and it's all shit it's sort of um, this must be really important because it's about sex and we're frequently told sex and death those are the two big themes so why is pornography this field with absolutely no standards it's the most interesting thing to do is to find the areas of culture that are not being paid attention to pornography magic something which nobody in their right mind can possibly take seriously that is attractive to me so yeah poetry everybody hates poetry <laughs> And I haven't done any since I was, since I thought I was doing some when I was a teenager. Uh, because when you're a teenager, you think that looks like the easiest form of writing. Yeah. I'm going to do some of that. And it's not, it's the hardest. So I'm, I'm doing a couple of poems, nothing spectacular, but I'd like to work my way up to something bigger. The main thesis in our forthcoming, the Book of Magic that I'm uh, working on with the late Steve Moore. Um, our basic thesis in that is that originally we define magic as any purposeful engagement with the phenomena and possibilities of consciousness. We believe that when we first, about 70,000 years ago, when I believe that was the cognitive revolution when we developed modern consciousness, modern language, what must that have been like? All of a sudden, what we could do with our minds changed. We were suddenly having thoughts. We were having ideas. And because we had not got a concept of consciousness, obviously, they came from the gods. They came from supernatural sources. It seems to me that magic was a one-stop science of being everything was explained by magic it was our first natural way of understanding and trying to gain some control over the universe that we were surrounded by over the centuries magic has been dismantled with the beginnings of settled urban society people didn't have to grow their own food for the first time. So what they could do was specialize. You got priests who were able to specialize. That took away magic's spiritual component. You got artists and writers, those bastards, <laughs> and they were able to specialize. That took away a lot of the visionary capacity that had previously been solely the province of magic then but magic was still good on healing which is effectively science and other areas of what we know today as science it hung on to them until around about the renaissance when you got the development of science as we know it today uh, empirical reasoning and all the rest which is is great it's a brilliant tool for examining reality but it is not reality itself. It is, it is great. It can talk about anything that can be repeated in a uh, laboratory. It cannot, therefore, talk about consciousness. 
consciousness cannot be repeated in a laboratory and will therefore always be outside the province of science. If you want to deal with the contents of our heads, the thing that actually makes us us, then you have to deal with something that isn't science, perhaps art, perhaps magic. I believe that the two are almost uh, identical. I believe that they're practically the same thing. I think that with the Renaissance, science rose up, that took away science. Uh, science suddenly became a thing on itself. It was the child of magic, but like many children, was horribly embarrassed by its parent <laughs> with her, her third nipple and all of her chanting. And so uh, it tried to disown itself. Um, you know, it, I don't want anything to do with magic. However, the way that science is evolving these days, there are a lot of concepts in science which are every bit as ridiculous and unprovable as the ideas in occultism. Multiple universes, for example. I mean, that is sexing angels. We are never going to be able to prove that. Um, that is an occult idea. I believe that what we could do, basically, I believe that all of our culture is the dismembered body of magic. Every element of our culture, perhaps apart from sports, I don't... <laughs> I, I think that was just the hunters showing off. But, but everything else has originated theatre. All of our culture, science, everything originates in magic. This is an example of what the alchemists referred to as the process of solvay, which is basically analysis. It's taking something apart so that you can understand it by understanding all the little pieces. You take the watch apart to figure out how it works. That is part of a two-word formula, solvay et coagula. When the thing has been taken into as many parts as it can be, when you've taken it down to the last cog, coagula is putting it back together in a hopefully improved form. I think this is what is happening now. This is what, is, this is what has to be happening now. We have to link up, I believe, link up magic with art. That would be better for magic, and it would certainly be better for art. Because magic would have a product, something beautiful that people could actually see, that happened in this dimension. And art would have a reason. Uh, it wouldn't be this, frankly, a lot of half-baked conceptualism where demi-ideas are sort of enshrined. They're, they're barely ideas. They're like advertising ideas. All probably through Charles Saatchi. But sort of what we, we need to do is to, yeah, we connect up magic with art. We then connect art with science. That's already happening to a certain degree. Scientists are taking inspiration from art and vice versa. Then, and this is the most contentious thing, the final part of the program would be to link up science and politics. Let's have some evidence-based politics. That would be a coagula, that would have put 
culture back together into a working form. That's what I think we should do. And also, form an arts lab. Do that now. Yeah. <laughs> Alan Moore and John Higgs there in, in conversation in the Bosco tent during the Brighton Festival, May 2016. Now, Dave, I have been working recently on a radio documentary for, for BBC Radio 3 right. on the theme of water worship and water goddesses. And I got the chance to... You see my bathroom. <laughs> and I got the chance to, um, to interview Alan and um, pick his brain. Is he, a, is he a water worshipper? Well, one of the characters in his in his new book, Jerusalem, right. is a water spirit uh-huh. called the uh, Nairn Hag, who's terrifying. She's two miles long and, <laughs> uh, and, and utterly terrifying, really genuinely uh, creepy entity within, right. uh, with, within, the, within the story. And so, I mean, she's, she, because of our treatment of rivers, because of the way we have polluted our rivers, she, uh, as an entity, has been transformed and sullied and, you know, made, made into... Sort of the Danny Dyer of river gods. Oh, who's Danny Dyer? I don't know who Danny Dyer is. You know, he's a Cockney bloke who's in EastEnders now. Well, a bit, a bit, well, a bit worse than that. Um, okay. You know, our, anyway, she, a polluted soul. Let's right. say the, the, yeah. pollute, the pollution of the water has turned into polluted soul. So she, she likes nothing better than, than, than dragging people down into the water, or those that fall in um, and, and drown, to, to make them into her lovers. But there's nothing she can do with them other than completely terrify them. Right. And, uh, and so just holds them in this cold embrace until they lose their minds entirely, and then she casts them away. <laughs> it's I've really... had a few exes like that. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's generally terrifying. So, so I got to interview him for this, for this uh, documentary, and I thought I'd take some biscuits round. Oh, that was all leading up to that. It right, was all okay. leading to that. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad and, we kept it short. And it was, it was, it was difficult working out what biscuit. What biscuit do you take to to Alan Moore? It's so, a really tough one. It's a really tough one. I, I would, what would you have taken? I think I would have probably taken something complex and multi layered, um, like. Um, the uh, I don't know if you even get them anymore. You know, there's ones that had the flaky pastry almost with the sort of glaze on the top and lemon filling. I can't mm. remember what they're called. Lemon... Lemon puff. Lemon puff. I'll take him lemon puffs. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go, Alan. Here's some lemon puffs. You, so, so <laughs> really? Yeah. So the biscuit of choice you would have taken... Yeah, yeah, lemon puffs. Alan would have been a lemon puff. Well, look, yeah. I didn't take lemon puffs. I right. took I took I took chocolate hobnobs. I thought I thought that was playing um, it safe, weren't you? I thought I was playing. Yeah, Going I was playing safe. Well, anyway, he didn't he didn't eat one, so ah, I don't I'm know. Surprised you didn't throw them in your face. Well, say think harder. <laughs> Surprise <laughs> me. It's only got two layers. Yes, yeah, exactly. like a biscuit with at least six. Exactly. Um, anyway, so I don't know whether he just wasn't hungry that morning or whether it was just a, a poor choice. I didn't ask. Maybe. Maybe I should uh, try and find out for next time. What, you should what do his absolutely. Choice yeah. Is. yeah. So yeah, listeners, yeah. maybe that should be competition. Listeners. Could you the correct biscuit to take Alan Moore? Yeah, and and we can get the answer off him, can't we? If we can keep that, and the one who matches it gets the big big prize, which is Alan Moore. <laughs> you get to win. You get to Alan Moore. Alan Moore. I think that's, I'm, I'm sure he'll be fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be okay. Won't Put it? him in your bedroom. Exactly. Do what you want with him. Yeah. You know. Invite your friends around. Guess what I've got upstairs? It's bloody, <laughs> Alan, bloody Alan Moore. Moore. There he is, eating his lemon puffs. There we yeah. go. Good. We weren't expecting competition to arise out of this random conversation. But as always, with the auditorium competitions, you can send your answers to Auditorium Podcast England, England and that should that should get to it. Yes. 
The Auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. Dave Mountfield. The producers are Andrew Mailing and David Bramwell. Studio managers were Sam Walter and Hannah Schmidt. Discover more about the show and upcoming live events at oddpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk and contact us through contact at oddpodcast.com. If you like the auditorium, please leave a review for us on iTunes. The Auditorium is a best-selling book full of fascinating stories about pioneers, outsider artists, adventurers, and counterculture heroes. It's published by Hodder and Stoughton and is available through Amazon and all good bookshops. Disgraced former studio manager Lance Dan is currently serving time at Her Majesty's pleasure. Our studio producer, Andrew Mailing, has suggested V for Viennese Whirl. We like that, don't we? That's a win. Yeah. So you have won, Andrew. Alan Moore. Alan Moore.